0: Like I said, I think it's world leading. The the research areas that the lecturers work in, yeah, it's high and like they, they demand high standards, which, yeah, when you're working alongside doing your master's as well is probably quite tough at times. But I think it's great that they do demand those high standards because it's obviously paying off.
1: And welcome to another episode of Talking Salford. This time, we have taken our production outside of the studio as we experiment with a bit of home recording pandemic style. Uh, Rest assured, we will still be bringing you a thoroughly entertaining interview with one of our esteemed alumni. And today, we venture into the School of Health and Society with a guest who can offer a unique insight into one of the feel-good stories of this summer for English sports fans. So a warm welcome to Dr. Matt Cuthbert. Matt, how are you doing today?
0: Yeah, very well, thank you.
1: Now, as I said, Matt can deliver a unique perspective as he is a physical performance coach at the Football Association and works exclusively with the under-17 and under-19 England Lionesses set up. But how did he get there? So Matt has been with Salford for a long time. In fact, he's only just left after nine years of studying. Uh, this began back in 2014 when Matt started his undergraduate in sports st- sports science, strength and conditioning, which he later followed up with a master's in strength and conditioning in 2018. Then for the last five years, he's been working towards his PhD in applied biomechanics, which he obtained just a few weeks ago at graduation. He's been working with the Football Association since September 2018 and has seen firsthand how the women's football game has grown in this country with many of the Lionesses who lit up the Women's World Cup this summer, having come in through the junior ranks that Matt works with. So, Matt, tell me about yourself, first of all. You've worked in sport for the whole of your career so far. Why the big interest? Was this something you'd always really wanted to do? Why do you think you ended up in football?
0: Yeah, so I've always had a big interest in sport, like ever since I was young, played it, Uh, started off playing football, realised I wasn't very good at it and moved on. Um so yeah, I played cricket, basketball, rugby, rugby union was my big sport growing up um so yeah, I always had a huge keen like keen interest would follow like yeah would follow it on t v as much as it would be on, so whatever was being broadcasted, I'd be watching it um so yeah, it was a big love, I knew I wanted to be involved in it um, knew I wasn't good enough to be a, a competitive athlete um, so the next best thing was was being part of that support staff. Um, so yeah, had various interests um, in sort of like science as well. And as I was growing growing up, so the natural step was that I'd maybe look at doing something like physio or um, something like that. When because they're, they're like they're the guys that you see running on the pitch. It's the, like the very obvious backroom staff that that support players. But after going to college and being supported within my like rugby in my own sport um f- with strength and conditioning as soon as I was in that environment sort of knew right that's this is what I want to pursue this is something that I really enjoy doing um and then it, it went from there and escalated quite quickly
1: so uh you played a lot of football when you're growing up as well um did you ever think back then that you'd be training with a team like the uh, the set setup
0: No, not at all. And to be fair, like, they're better footballers than I could have ever dreamed of being. So it is definitely, it's a pleasure to work with them.
1: Do you find it interesting being someone, um, and I was talking to uh, someone recently about this, the idea that when it comes to sport, it's probably one of the only industries where you've got uh, the people that are training and coaching the players are the people that wanted to be in the position of the people that they're coaching. It's It's quite interesting. You wouldn't get that set up in many other industries.
0: Yeah, it's like something we joke about, or I joke about a lot as a strength and conditioning coach, is that most of us are just failed athletes, um, that have, or in some cases they're successful athletes who have then found a different path, but um, for the majority of us, yeah, failed athletes in some respect or other.
1: So, so when it comes to looking at a degree, uh, what was it about Salford that jumped out to you?
0: Yeah, so for strength and conditioning specifically, there was three or four good programs at the time when I was looking and um, three of them were specifically just strength and conditioning. Um, the one at Salford is sports science and then it has a strength conditioning pathway within the third year. Um, one of the best piece of advice I got from one of the strength conditioning coaches at my college was like, keep the base, keep your base wide, try and increase your base of knowledge as much as you can so that you can apply lots of different things within your practice. Cause Within strength and conditioning, like, we have to work across a multidisciplinary team. So you work with the technical coaches, you work with physios, doctors, nutritionists. There are occasions when we are the nutritionists because it's an area that is maybe slightly under, not undervalued, but under supported. So we don't necessarily all have a like nutritionist with, with every team. Um, at the England Pathway, we have one nutritionist that oversees all of our age groups. So we have to deliver some of the principles that, that they have um, provided to us. So, yeah, having a good like base of knowledge initially, um, I saw value in that and was, like I say, given some really good advice on that front. Um, and then did a bit of research around what the courses looked like, who, uh, yeah, lectured on those courses. And, yeah, the, the lecturers that we've got at Salford, Within sports science, so world leading within their research, mm-hmm. um, they they're presenting at international conferences most years, and yeah, they've got quite a big profile. So that was also then a, a bit of a pull.
1: It was was that quite clean? That sorry, was that quite a key factor then in terms of what Salford could offer you that some of the other universities that offer this degree couldn't?
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, because I think a lot of people get sort of not distracted but um they'll see the appeal with like brand new facilities and things like which are brilliant but actually it's then the people who are delivering within those facilities so when I first uh visited Salford the strength conditioning room was there was three weightlifting platforms in a small room which had a court like one big it was like a triangle it was like a little wedge so it was almost like hidden away in one of the buildings I came and started in the September and actually they'd opened it up and they'd like completely renovated it. Yeah. Um, which makes it a lot more appealing, but actually the, the thing that drove me there was, um, yeah, the fact that the the people I'd be working with, uh, know their stuff.
1: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I guess that's a lesson also in never judging a book by its cover, I guess when it comes to facilities with a university degree, it really does. It's the people that you're, you're learning from ultimately, and you still quite close to the people that you um, that you worked under and learned under at Salford?
0: Yeah, definitely. So I actually got, um, yeah, a couple of weeks ago got provide or given an honorary research fellow role. So yeah, still keeping my hand in in at Salford. Um, <laughs> but yeah, still have regular conversations with um, my supervisors from my PhD who also lectured on the undergrad and and the masters. So yeah, built some really good relationships with them and. To be fair, a lot of the opportunities that I've had have come as a result of working closely with them. That's fab. That's brilliant.
1: So can you talk to me about how you found your undergrad at Salford? Uh, any key highlights that jump out from that time?
0: Oh, I'm Salford. Uh, that was good, to be fair. like, like I think I've mentioned it to you previously around like our accommodation building is now where the new science and engineering building is. We were like the last group in there It got knocked down in the year, like the following year. Um, But actually, like, it's so close to being in Manchester. You've obviously got Media City around as well. Like, it's it's Manchester's almost like expanding. The city center is like expanding out, and there's loads of work going on. So it looks very different to when I first arrived, but it's all, yeah. Heading in a very good direction.
1: Can you remember a lot of, I guess, the the day to day doing your courses and undergrad? What was the kind of the key things that you had to do as part of your course? So we had lectures most days.
0: Um, quite a few were practical as well, which was good. Like that's one of the appeals for me was that it wasn't all um, lecture hall based. Uh, so a lot of the lec- uh, a lot of the practicals would end up happening in, in Mary Seagull, one of the buildings. Um, and the gym in there, or there's a human performance lab in there, which has indoor running track, um, and lots of bits of high tech equipment. Um, so that was great because we just get hands on stuck in there. Um, my accommodation was on the, sort of the main campus. So it'd be short walk in the morning across the train tracks to, yeah, to Allerton or to, to Mary Seacole. And, um, yeah, kept, kept us busy. Uh, they, like to throw in a Thursday morning lecture as well. Um, bearing in mind sports and stuff happened on a Wednesday. Um, so that was always, always interesting. But um, yeah, it, it was good. So uh,
1: as a sports fanatic then and doing a sports degree, I imagine you did a bit of sport as well when you were here?
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. I played for the rugby union side for for the first two years. Um, the second year I separated my AC joint and my shoulder. Um, so... Yeah, that put an end to that season, and then in third year, I started being a, like a lot more involved in coaching and getting experience. Um, so yeah, had to had to sort of hang my boots up temporarily so that I didn't get injured and didn't have that time away from coaching because getting experience in our industry is huge.
1: Yeah, no, I can imagine absolutely. And and if if I'm not wrong here, you also worked as a bouncer in Manchester whilst you were a student <laughs> as well, didn't you? <laughs>
0: Yeah, I think the the job title was door supervisor, door supervisor. but yeah, I worked on a, yeah I worked on the doors in, in Manchester for a company. So the company that I worked for sponsored our rugby team at uni, and um, sort of used that as a recruiting drive. So during sort of back end of first year and all the way through second year, um, yeah, supplemented my uh, student loan with with some door work um, most nights. So yeah, that was interesting and. Yeah, a good learning experience.
1: I mean, how did you manage? I guess finishing work in the very early hours of the morning, and then potentially having a <laughs> lecture at nine AM the next morning. Well, that later on that morning.
0: Yeah, it, it was. Yeah, not easy <laughs> at times. And a lot of like afternoon naps to to keep going. Um, but yeah, i I'd, I'd kind of work like Tuesday night, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, so it didn't interfere too much unless it was around Christmas time and I got busy. So then a Thursday was added as well. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it was, it was quite intense at, at times, but yeah, I wouldn't
1: change it. So when, when did you know uh, that you wanted to do a masters?
0: So sort of between second and third year, when I started to like look at what job opportunities there, there would be and what experience I'd need to get to, to get there, it sort of became clear that a, jobs in sport are extremely competitive there's so many not just strength and conditioning courses now but just sports science generally most universities will have a course most universities will have a couple of hundred people or a hundred or so people joining that course so each year you get in this crop of uh students graduating with the same qualification as you like what's going to set you out so actually working in a professional sport um sort of Yeah, you started to see that a master's became part of that process and that idea of specialism because, like I say, a lot of courses are just sports science. Yeah. So when you then start getting that extra level of of strength conditioning as a specialism, um, that's what started to sort of set you apart from everyone else as well as then the experience alongside it. So like our master's course had a mixture of a wide range of ages. There were some people who had just come straight out of undergrad like myself. Um there were some people who had been working in sport because they built up experience and been working in there a long time and um, but felt they needed that extra level of specialism as well. So, um, yeah, that was a good mix.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. So talk to me a little bit about um, what that Masters then was. What, what did it consist of for you? What was how did that compare to the undergrad then? I guess it's just all at a much higher level in terms of the academic side, but also yeah. in terms of the research.
0: Yeah, so it was a lot. So we almost progressed. We finished our third year, having done a dissertation, which was a, a research project. Um, so it was sort of bringing the next step and the next level into that. Um, we ended up having to produce a like literature review that would then build into your research proposal, which then built into another bigger research project, a bit like a dissertation. So it's sort of it was a more condensed higher level version of like that dissertation process in third year um alongside then having practical assessments um coaching assessments so that you could demonstrate how competent you were in some of the more um yeah complicated processes where, when coaching so um yeah that sort of lead up because it, it's a year-long uh master's you sort of have from september to december mm-hmm. focusing on strength conditioning then you have sort of december to um sort of that may april may time where it would be injury prevention performance measurement okay which would then lead into your research project and um, so it layers up really well and supports a th- similar theme throughout the process and um, whilst also then ticking off various like testing methods um, which you'd probably use in practice like we use it a lot with some of our England girls Um, and as well as actually then just the practical coaching side of things.
1: Now the postgraduate course in strength and condition has become a a real breeding ground to some of the leading sports clubs in the northwestern Manchester area. Uh, We talked about this previously but both Manchester football clubs have sold for the alumni on their staff that did the master's course here. Um, Were you aware of that when you were considering doing a master's?
0: yeah yeah uh, when i was considering doing the masters because i'd been as an undergrad um i'd met a couple of them um and a couple of people who so there's also been quite a strong link with sale sharks previously so premiership rugby as well um they actually have funded a, a couple of masters places previously based off um in the third year of the undergrad you have to do a placement module mm-hmm. and those who do the placement if they sort of have the right work ethic and like show themselves in a very good light sale of previously then funded a master's place for them um which then gives them another year of, of experience of working with professional sports. So yeah like very much being around it I've always been quite aware of of the trajectory that a lot of people have, have taken from both the undergrad and the masters um whether that's into PhD, into professional sport, um so yeah, I think, and then these days there's a lot of yeah any success that goes around from alumni and the, there's obviously various Twitter posts and mm-hmm. stuff around it. So um, yeah, there's, there's lots of people involved in in professional sport who have come through the ranks.
1: What do you think that says to you about the calibre of teaching that you got here at Salford?
0: Like like I say, I think it's it's world leading. Um, the the research areas that the lecturers working um like i said they're they're presenting at international conferences like keynote and everything so yeah it's high and like they they demand they demand high standards um which yeah when you're working alongside doing your masters as well is it's probably quite tough at times but i think it's great that they do demand those high standards because it's obviously paying off um for a lot of, a lot of the uh, people who have come through. Absolutely.
1: Now you had your first big coaching experience at Bury FC uh, in its previous form. So that was back in 2018. And that was before you did your PhD. So that was your first real experience out there in a, in a sports club in the area. How how did that go for you?
0: Yeah, I think it was a, a big learning curve. So like you see in sort of the news all the time, like, Managers get sacked, then therefore staffing changes. Um, I was fortunate that one of my best mates at uni who went down sort of the performance analysis route rather than strength conditioning, um, he already got the job at Berry, and then put my name forward. Once head coach had been sacked, the academy S&C coach moved up with the interim head coach. Um, So there was a spot in the academy for me. Um, and being in that environment, working with the technical coaches, like the footballing coaches, um, a lot closer than I ever have done before. Because like my previous experiences prior to that was working with sort of um, like rowing teams, uh, BMXers, um, netballers, where actually they'd come to the gym, we'd do the, the work and then they'd go off and travel to wherever to do their technical work. Um, and their skills based training whereas this was very much embedded like you can imagine um so yeah being in day to day with those technical coaches learning to communicate well with them to try and get their buy-in because everyone's competing for time mm-hmm. uh, and yeah showing that you've got like there's obviously there's various um opinions and philosophies from different technical coaches that may support what we do, but sometimes it conflicts. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yes, learning to navigate that was a very steep learning curve. And, yeah, definitely made a few mistakes looking back, but actually, like, on reflection, it helps me to then get to where I am and their experiences that have been valuable. So,
1: yeah, I mean, you you must have been able to build up a rapport or a relationship with the players when you were there but it, that's not as easy as it sounds is it when you're coming in no
0: no no especially yeah especially midway through the season and they don't know who you are Um so yeah it's diving into the deep end Um but like you see it all the time I think that's you're almost treading water a little yeah. bit building those relationships until you then get a full pre-season like almost have a full cycle with the players um, and staff Um which didn't end up occurring because um, then I went on to, to get the PhD and actually the contract ended at the end of that season anyway. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it it was
1: definitely a, a steep learning curve. Let's uh, talk about your role with the Lionesses. Uh Explain to me how that opportunity came about.
0: Yeah. So I was coming to the end of my master's. Um, they'd approached uh, Paul Comfort, who's the, one of our professors um and sort of led or leads the master's program. Mm-hmm. Um, they'd met with him to say, we've got this, we've got these questions that we want answering. Like, are we able to do it? So they went through what is called, it's now called an IPHD. So an industry funded PhD okay. that got set up and advertised through Salford. Um, so yeah, I applied for that. And Luckily, or for- yeah, very fortunately, got the job. Um, so yeah, it was it was fully funded through the F- like the FA were funding it through Salford. Um, the questions were, or the overarching question around what they wanted answering uh, was decided upon prior to my application. So I had to provide a research proposal um, for that as part of the application process, um, and then
1: had an interview as well. So talk to me about how the setup with the under 17 and under 19s works. Because I mean everyone's been hearing about Lionesses all summer, but how does the youth team work?
0: Yeah, so our youth pathway runs from under 23s down to under-15s now. The only team we don't have within that is an under 18s, because most other nations don't have an under 18s group. Mm-hmm. Um there's two competition age groups. So under 17s who I'm with, and under nineteens both uh both feature or both have the opportunity to qualify for European championships every season. And then every other season they have the, uh, the European championships, the Euro roses then used as a qualifier for the world cup mm-hmm. at those age groups. So happens every two years and alternates between 17s and 19s. So this coming season is our 17s uh, world cup year. Therefore next year will be the under 19s uh, opportunity to qualify. Um, so yeah, Start The pathway starts off at, at under-15s. Then they have a two-year build-up to that under seventeen cycle where we have a round one qualifier around October, November time. So we're going to Hungary this year. Um, then we have round two qualifiers. So top three out of four teams go through to round two. Round two, you have four teams again. So it's a three-game tournament. And it's only then the top team out of that group that qualifies for the finals. And the finals happens in May, which this year is in Sweden, which is exciting.
1: Very nice. So how does your job work with the team then? What do you do?
0: So day-to-day on camp, I'm there to, well, we start off the day, players will come in after waking up and uh, go through sort of a wellness process. We'll check how they are from either the, like training previously or the games that we have played. Um, so that'll be like me and the medical team, so physio and doctor. Um, assess how the players are. We then have technical planning meetings where, once we've worked out where the players are at, how that fits into what we planned into a session, make any modifications that we need to. um But then I'll sit in with the technical t- the staff um, to plan or to finalise the training sessions that we end up doing that day. Mm-hmm. Or if we've got games, we'll, we'll be getting ready for that. Um, then we have, we usually go in straight into training at that point. So prior to training, we go through an individual preparation slot where we work with individuals to make sure they're then ready to go into team preparation, which is sort of a little bit of, it's like a, a small dose of gym work um, rather than us having like one or two. And this is where, like where my PhD came from. Um, rather than us having one or two big gym sessions like you might do at club or you might do just generally at home, we then could we split those up and divide those up into like prior to on pitch training okay. every day so they still do the same amount but it's then just reduced into smaller smaller doses um so we have that then we get out onto the pitch have our pitch sessions once the pitch sessions finished um and within that I'll be like recording their gps i've got timings for general drills um almost a bit like a yeah drill sergeant but I'll be calling that out. Um, then, post train nutrition, we'll get them in, we'll get them fed, um, and then we'll have various recovery strategies that, that we end up using with them um, like stretching, foam rolling, ice baths if it's appropriate, um, some heat strategies. Uh, and then, but like the two big things that we go after are like sleep and nutrition, particularly with the younger lot. Um, so, yeah, that's sort of day to day. We have counts that'll last 10 to 12 days on on average and mm-hmm. um, sometimes we have short ones if they're just training camps um where we maybe only got one or two fixtures tournaments have three unless you go to the finals where it's four or five yeah and um, so yeah that's day to- day on camp in between that we do a lot of planning for those camps um logistical and then just departmental okay um, and then we try and develop being a full type so because we've got we've got five or so teams within the pathway, but only two full-time members of staff. We then have consultants come in with some of the other age groups. So a lot of the time then off-camp is uh, helping either create resources that then further our delivery and provide consultants with what they need to deliver or um, just setting them up and getting them through the planning process as well.
1: So what, what, what have you learned? What has been the big learnings for you from working with the setup?
0: The, the, one of the big things is sort of the strategic development side of things. I think a lot of the stuff that you learn within your degree or various degrees is around delivery. So it's like either collecting data, learning to analyse that data, like coaching, but actually, especially within the international setup where we've got a bit of time in between camps, like I think it's more difficult at clubs where they're just going week to week um and have to perform every week but certainly we're in our international setup the exposure i've had to more strategic thinking and development is something i would never had exposure to before so like yeah working out what our priorities are how that fits with the purpose globally as an organization as well as in our departments and then building up projects and tactics to um to yeah develop our ways of working so that we can yeah go yeah, try and achieve that common goal, which the ultimate goal is winning major tournaments, um, which we were fortunate enough to do last season. Just missed out this year. But with that, it's also within the youth pathway as well um, that we're, we're going after those win or those experience. If we get to finals,
1: mm-hmm.
0: then those experiences sort of will help them on their, their journey to, to develop.
1: How do you think this summer has gone from an employee within the organisation. Has it been everyone being on tender hooks? Has it been United Front? How is it when you've got seniors going that deep in a World Cup?
0: Yeah, to be fair, I think there's something, and you'll hear them say it all the time, there's something different about sort of this group of staff and players. So since Serena came in, like there was just a big change. It happened very rapidly, but like they've, Sort of managed it really well, and you sort of have no worries really that like they're ever gonna lose. It sounds tough. but the players have like they're so calm and confident that actually, even within the final, and we were 1 0 down to Spain, there was still a part of me that was like, No, we're gonna bring this back. Mm. Like, we've done it before, quarterfinal of the Euros, we were losing to them. We sent Millie Bright up top and um, managed to snatch a, an equaliser to then take it to extra time. So there's sort of a never didn't say die attitude. Absolutely, that, like yeah, runs like ends up running through. And so yeah, I mean, there's still I'm still a nervous wreck watching it, <laughs> but there's <laughs> there is still like a confidence of no, do you know what they like? They've got this, um, and that's like yeah, down to both Serena and all of the support staff uh, around them to so that they've got that confidence as well. And and the girls are unbelievable. So. Yeah, it's definitely a a good environment to be working in.
1: I mean, like Georgia Stanway, Ella Toon, Lauren Ham, Chloe Kelly—these are all stars from this year's final making team, and they all came through in the youth setup. So, what impact yeah. do you, do you think they are now having now on the game, with the game in this country? Um, it, it's clearly in a period of unprecedented growth and change.
0: Yeah, it's it's unbelievable. Like. Those individuals that you've mentioned were all part of the last Youth World Cup that we attended. Mm -hmm. So, um, in 2018, just after I so I started just after they'd been, but they were part of the under 20s World Cup. So, if you qualify for uh, the World Cup within your under 19s Euros year, you then have a whole season to prepare for that World Cup. Whereas under 17s, you only have a couple of months. So, yeah, they were part of the. It was in France the same year that uh, the men's went to Russia and got to the semi-final. Um the girls got to the semi-final as well mm-hmm. they ended up losing that and came third so got a bronze medal but the fact that that whole group have had those experiences at youth level actually then has held them in good stead for being part of major tournaments at seniors as well so it shows the process is like works mm-hmm. we've just got to make sure that our youth players have that opportunity now so it's putting them in the best place to yeah to qualify for those events so that they get to experience them but yeah the impact those players have and they all do it in their own ways as well which is great like i see hempo playing with like building lego and like doing things very quietly in her direction whereas then you've got your chloe kelly who is just very confident Mm -hmm. and like that's who she is so it is great to see all their personalities coming out and them just being themselves
1: absolutely i mean with both the men and the women in the English uh, they're both going quite far in tournaments at the minute. It, do you think combined, this is a golden generation of England athletes?
0: I don't know where necessarily whether it's golden generation or whether it's just like the new, the new norm. Like having seen the players come through the pathway, sort of things that we're we're trying to instill and trying to like the systems we're trying to build to support because they're like the overarching purpose and the aim of the organization is to win major tournaments and then sustain winning mm-hmm. um so yeah I'd like to think is it's going to be the new norm and and we're going to be for the like next few cycles going to be pushing um yeah pushing that needle consistently
1: do you, so you're you're envisioning a lot more success for this group going forward yeah i
0: i think so i think the confidence they've got some of the players we've got coming through the pathway um, yeah, I think, and and the leadership they've got as well. I, I mean, that all might change if, say, Serena leaves or if uh, Gareth ends up leaving, um, and then some new ideas and new changes come in. But that also might accelerate it the same way that, like, Serena coming in has accelerated it. Yeah. So, yeah, for now, I'd I'd be I'd confidently say that although we might not win major championships every time, we'll certainly be pushing that like longer end of the of the
1: tournament Uh, it's great to have your confidence there um there's been a lot of talk this year particularly the women's game around the sheer number of acl injuries uh british orthopedic association state that female athletes have between three to six times higher risk of these injuries than than males do as a coach in the lioness's setup how do you support athletes and prevent these injuries from affecting the younger groups and harming their potential careers
0: yeah, so I like there's been a lot of talk about it in the media generally. It's something that's very prevalent, particularly in women's sports, but actually just sports in general. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a high prevalence. Like, I've, I'm a big, like you could probably see here, I'm a big NFL fan. Like, there's always an ACL count that comes up on Twitter every season. Mm-hmm. Well, not even that, like, within preseason. And they get into like 30s or 40s before the season's even started. So, just generally, with competitive team sports where you've got multidirectional elements to it, like there's going to be some level of ACL injury. Unfortunately, it is quite high in the women's game. Um, it's very multifactorial. So there's lots of different um, reasons that it could happen, if not a combination of lots of different reasons. So, yeah, there's lots of things that that we're exploring that we do to support. I'm also trying to encourage... so we don't get a lot of time with the players. So it's also then helping the clubs develop them as athletes too, um, in terms of like long-term change, there was actually quite a lot of, or some research done into at Salford into sort of some ACL research Mm -hmm. around direction as an action and some of the, um, key risk factors that may then contribute to, to ACL injuries, um, and a lot of it was like very physical related, but that's definitely just one corner of it. There's obviously uh, talk around some of the menstrual cycle and boots and like the surfaces that they're playing on. Um, from my world, I think because of the rise in professionalism so rapidly, players are maybe not as prepared for the physical demands as they potentially could be uh-huh. Um and that's potentially just a bit of a lag time and will sort itself out to, to a certain extent because like the pro-game academies that have come in this season, like previously we had WSL academies and regional talent clubs, they've all changed to pro-game academies now. Um, the investment in their time, um, the number of training days they've got, hopefully they're doing a lot more gym work as well because I think strength is a, a big... Um, contributor or lack of is potentially a big contributing factor um so there is a lot of work being done there is a lot of or there's there's been media talk about there needs to be more research i mean generally there needs to be more research in female athletes or females in generally i imagine in other areas but yeah in female athletes there is a lack lack of research generally Mm -hmm. but actually like there has been quite a lot of stuff done in acls um that i think has potentially been missed so Like there's still a lot more to be done, Um, but yeah, we just need to. to, I don't think we'll ever find a solution for it, but certainly trying to lower the risk factor as much as we can is definitely is the way that we need to go. So, yeah, it's coming. I think as to how quickly that develops. Like, yeah, we're still getting ACL a couple of players in the pathway with England in the last week or so of. Have got another couple of ACL injuries, so it, it's heartbreaking for them. Yeah. But how do you
1: deal with the mental health side of that? Then how do you support them?
0: So, so will we stay as connected with them as as we can do? Um Obviously, when they're not with us, they're uh, they're sort of club's responsibility. Um, But yeah, we try and keep them connected within, especially because we see like they're part of the England setup. That we see them as high potential players. So we try and we'll support the clubs as much as we can. We'll stay in contact and stay in touch with them as, as people, let alone as as football players, um, to make sure that they're being supported in every way they can. Um, I think it the positive thing now is that because of the support that they get, then actually we are seeing them return to football and return to a high quality of football reasonably quickly. Yeah. I mean, the, like the maturity process of that, is about nine months, depending on the individual, so it is quite a bit of time out. But we then see them being reintegrated back into the England setup and they get back up to where they are. So I don't think it's necessarily as, um, yeah, as tough a process in the fact that if they didn't have that support and they were just going finding that, having to find their own way through it, like maybe they have done previously, they'd probably be worries that they wouldn't get back up to where they were previously mm-hmm. but yeah with the support that they get now it not the end of the journey for them that's great to hear.
1: that's great to hear but like you're a self-confessed lover of all sports uh, i think we discussed that and you follow a great deal of them so uh doing your qualifications and your experience today it opens up a lot of doors to many other sports besides football so what other roles have you thought you might want to explore further down the line yeah so
0: to be fair, I don't think i mean like I'm a big n f l fan yeah, yeah. I think working over in America would be like very interesting mm-hmm. because I think the way that the sports system is set up over there, we've obviously got an academy system for quite a few sports in this country um if not, then it's still a very centralized um yeah way of nurturing talent, whereas they' very much got their high school collegiate into. Um, professional sports exactly. and that route so mm-hmm. it, it'd be an interesting one to explore and some new challenges within that as to what sport ends up being like i said lover of most sports so i don't think that would necessarily be like a sway one way or the other and mm-hmm. um, the bit that's like or a lot of the stuff interesting me now whereas well i've always loved working with like data and numbers and asking questions and trying to find answers and like solve problems. So actually the way sort of data analytics is going and the influence that has within sport um, is like very much an interest as well. I'm quite envious of some of the younger individuals who come up just like having had some like coding experience or computer science experience, maybe schools that like we haven't had that previously. So yeah, trying to self-teach, like coding and things like that it's a long arduous process I mean, for, for me. you've been a but student
1: for a long time i think you can maybe exactly. give yourself a little bit of a break from it <laughs> but yeah that that
0: whole idea like, analy- uh data analytics side yeah. is is growing massively and it's but i don't think that like that can't take away from the practical aspects of it as well like it's all very well knowing right these are the questions that are being, uh, being asked of the data. Let's find the answers. Yeah, yeah. But then it's um, how that's applied. Um, and that's where I think the balance of the two, like you almost become a bit of a unicorn around, like there's not many people who can do that. Yeah, yeah. Um, they're either one side of the spectrum or the other. So yeah, trying to find that middle ground of knowing how to interrogate the data properly and then not just how to apply it, but how to then present it and get buy-in from other coaching staff and other members of the multidisciplinary team is a, is an art. So it's certainly something that interests me quite a lot.
1: Nice, that's cool. That's really cool. Now, I mean, you draw my attention to it. So behind you, you obviously got Seattle Seahawks logo, but there is also an England yeah. t-shirt with Cuthbert 23 on the back. So is that from, yeah. is that from the team?
0: Yeah. So that was from the, so with the under 17s, we went to the Euros finals in Estonia this summer. Um, so yeah, there's a little team photo in there as well, and they all signed our shirts, which was yeah, very kind. Oh, and, touch. Yeah, there'll definitely be a couple of future lineesses within that group. Oh uh, well there we um, go. So yeah, i I like to hang my hat on one or two.
1: Still, <laughs> but like what do I know? <laughs> so <laughs> we'll we'll wait and see on that one. Yeah, let, let let's do some hot takes. So these are quick fire questions um to kind of round things off then. So uh, first one: What sporting event is unmissable, and why should people watch it? What sporting event? World Cup. <laughs> is that one event? World Cup final. World, World, World Cup final. Lioness is World Cup final. So that yeah, the weekend just gone. Then yeah,
0: yeah for sure. I I know you said quick fire, but actually one of our like members of staff on the Thursday before the game kicked off on Sunday, flew out to Sydney and then came back on the Monday. So Oof. the amount of travel involved in that just shows how immissible it Absolutely. is.
1: Absolutely no, no. That's that's a great answer there. Um so who do you foresee as the future Lioness's captain? Oh.
0: That's a very good question. Um
1: Putting you on the spot this here.
0: Yeah, on the spot there. Um, I'd potentially say Chloe Kelly. Any reason why? Well, I think there's a lot of leaders in that group there are. generally. Um, but I think just with like her, the confidence in her play and how I imagine she is around the group, Yeah. But I think there's like probably three or four that, that Absolutely. could be answered. It's a
1: hard question, as you say. There are loads yes. of leaders in that group. Um, and so I think it'll be really interesting to see how the captaincy develops over the years. Uh, so last one then. Uh, again, this is on the Lionesses. So I'm going to really put you on the spot here. What's your prediction for when they're going to win their next trophy? Name a year. Um,
0: Olympics next year. Although that's not technically Lionesses, it'll be like Team GB. Yeah, so
1: come on then, European uh, in or World of, Cup.
0: In terms of Lionesses, I've I think we'll we'll do. I mean, it's not done very often, but the next Euros with nice Serena still there, with the some of the players coming through, there's not many, there's not too many players who will end up leaving that group. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, defending that.
1: There we go. You're on the record about it. <laughs> yeah, maybe, yeah. <laughs> no, you're going to be held to that by absolutely, uh, Matt. <laughs> thank you so much for your time. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for sharing your experience and and coming with us on the pod today.
0: No problem. Thank you
1: very much. And so that that brings an end to uh today's episode. um I hope you found today fascinating, and you'll subscribe for more episodes where we bring you more interesting stories from our Salford University alumni. But until then, we'll see you next time.